Thank you for inviting me to your pulpit this morning. It's a great pleasure to be here, not only to see my family and uh, my mother doing so well, but his faith with you on this Lord's Day morning as we come to worship him. Our scripture reading is going to be found in Luke, the second chapter, where I'd like to read verses 1 to 10 as our text. Luke, the second chapter, and we'll stand for the reading. Hear now God's word. It came pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. This was the first enrollment made when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to enroll themselves, every one to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David to enroll himself with Mary, who was betrothed to him, being great with child. And it came to pass, while they were there, the days were fulfilled that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds in the same country, abiding in the field, and keeping watch by night over their flock. And an angel of the Lord stood by them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were very afraid. And the angel said unto them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news, great joy, which shall be to all the people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Messiah, the Lord. And this is the sign unto you, you shall find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men in whom he is well pleased. And it came to pass when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known unto us. And they came with haste and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known concerning the saying which was spoken to them about this child. And all that heard it wondered at the things which were spoken unto them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these sayings, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds glorifying and praising God for all the things that, had been, that they had heard and seen, even as it was spoken unto them. And thus far the reading of God's word. Let's continue in prayer. Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to behold the true wonder of this passage that uh, we have just read. We pray that you would help us to stand in awe before you, before your holiness, before your greatness and goodness, and before your grace this day. We pray that you would give us attentive minds as your word is proclaimed and that we might be blessed by it, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. It's not going to be any surprise to you to observe that there are a lot of people in this world that have trouble with Christian theology. They look at what the church teaches, they look at the uh, proclamation of the Bible, and they say, I'm not so sure about that. They're not real confident of the truthfulness of what the Bible asks 
Um, what Christianity propounds mystifies a lot of people. It aggravates a lot of people. Leaves a lot of people with doubts, if not downright opposition and hostility. For you see, what the Bible calls upon men to believe is a stumbling block. Faith is very hard. And I don't think we should lose sight of that. Those of us who have been Christians for a long time, I think sometimes take for granted. You know, you read these things in the Bible and, and you just believe them. But many people have a hard time believing what the Bible says. Consider just the doctrine of the atonement this morning. How can men believe that a man who was executed upon a Roman cross, executed as a criminal, how can they believe that that execution in some way puts away the sins of the world? Central to the Christian proclamation, how is that believable? How can an ancient fact of history have any bearing on our relationship to God today? People would say, well, whatever happened way back then is just a fact about way back then. How does that do with how I relate to God today? Or consider the resurrection. How can modern men believe such a thing as the resurrection? Rudolf Bultmann says anyone who uses a refrigerator cannot believe in miracles, cannot believe in something like a man coming back from the dead. Wouldn't it really be easier, from a rational standpoint, wouldn't it be easier to believe that Christ never really died? Wouldn't it be easier to believe that the disciples stole the body? Can we believe that Jesus emerged from that tomb with unending life? Can we believe that he emerged from that tomb in a glorified state that was the beginning of the new creation and what we have to look forward to ourselves? Or think about the miracles that are in the Bible. Do you really believe that a man can walk on water? Can you believe that a man can take a little boy's lunch and multiply it so that he can feed thousands of people? You believe that this man, Jesus, could raise himself? Questions like these perplex us, if we're honest. Questions like these perplex modern men. How are we to believe the things that are found in the Bible? I think J.I. Packer, however, gives us a perspective on all of this doubt about the Christian message that is very helpful. In his tremendous book, Knowing God, Packer says, and I want to quote him, in fact, the real difficulty, because the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us, does not lie here with all these intellectual problems at all. He says it lies not in the Good Friday message of atonement, nor in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. The really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God, made man, was as truly and fully divine as he was human. And so I want to ask this morning specifically on the wonder, the real wonder of the Christmas message, that we have here the proclamation that this baby was in fact the creator of the world. This baby that was born to a virgin, the modern world goes, yeah, right, this baby born to a virgin was God himself. That's the stumbling block for Jews who cannot believe that God, the transcendent creator, could become one with man in that way. And so they reject Jesus and his claims. They call it blasphemy, for it they crucified him. 
This is the real stumbling block to Muslims. They cannot endure the idea that the God that created this world, Allah as they call him, should somehow be that close to humanity and in fact take on human form. They reject the incarnation. They want to accept the Bible. They want to say they're one with the Bible, but they want to change certain elements of the Bible. And the, and the foremost thing that they will change is the incarnation. They don't believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. This is the real stumbling block to Unitarians, which of course is the doorway to all modern theology and defection from the truth as it's found in the Bible. The inability to believe that this man who walked among men was more than a man was in fact God himself. This is the great stumbling block to Jehovah's Witnesses in the cults. This is a stumbling block to all of those who have a rationalistic and autonomous mindset in terms of their philosophical outlook. Those who think ordinary, down-to-earth, rational, what they think are scientific thoughts, cannot bear this idea of a miracle that God became man. And it's because of a lack of acceptance of this one point in Christian theology the people have problems elsewhere because this is rejected all the rest is up for you see if Jesus were no more than some remarkable man some compassionate and good man some effective teacher among men if he was no more than perhaps even the best of the Hebrew prophets if he was in his very being no more than what can be said of any other normal human being, if he was no more than what I am or what you are, if Jesus was nothing but a human being, then the difficulties that people experience in reading the biblical account of his miracles or in reading the biblical account of his atoning death or of his vicarious um, uh, crucifixion, of his victorious resurrection, all of those difficulties are in fact insurmountable. If he was no more than a man, how can you believe those things to have happened? For you see, without the incarnation, without Jesus being God-made man, Christian faith comes to grief. Christian theology and the entire weight of the biblical span very delicately upon this one crucial point that Jesus was more than a man, more than a good man, more than an exemplary man, more than a supremely religious man, more than even an angel of God, he was God. He was the Lord himself. Christian theology loses all of its internal strength, all of its coherence, all of its credibility, and all of its power if Jesus is not seen to be God in human flesh. But now let's look at this another way. Once the Christmas story... Once the doctrine of the Incarnation is accepted, once man affirms the truth that Jesus was God himself, once that is believed from the heart, then almost instantly every other intellectual problem with the biblical account dissolves. Just finally fades into the air. If Jesus was who he claimed to be, if Jesus, God himself, as miraculous as that is, if he was the God-man, then all these other problems are nothing. I think it's because you believe the Christmas story that I have to remind you how difficult it is for others, those who are not part of the faith, the family of God, why people have so much difficulty believing the Bible. 
But you see, once you get past that point, everything else is smooth sailing. Everything else is really quite easy. In his uh, book entitled Miracles, C.S. Lewis has a chapter entitled The Grand Miracle. And it begins this way. I quote him. The central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. The fitness and therefore credibility of the particular miracles depends on their relation to the grand miracle. All of them in isolation from it is futile. End of quote. You see, if Jesus were very God of very God, that's the way Athanasius put it in later church uh, history, uh, uh, the debates in the early church over what we are to say about Jesus so we might be accurate to the biblical account. When Athanasius put it that way, if Jesus was very God of very God, then there should be no problem whatsoever in accepting his miracles. If he was very God of very God, there's no problem accepting his atoning death nor his resurrection to unending life. If Jesus was the one who created the heavens and the earth, if Jesus is the one who uh, made all the intricacies of this cosmos, if he is the one that is really behind what we call the physical laws of the world, if he is the grand creator, then I think there's very little wonder that he could multiply loaves and water. If Jesus was the one who called out Abraham to follow him, if Jesus is the one who gave the promise to Abraham of a son and kept that promise, if Jesus was the one who made Moses his spokesman to deliver the Jews from bondage, if Jesus was the one who instituted the temple service and the atoning sacrifices that look ahead to the Messiah, if Jesus is the one who made promise to David of a messianic deliverer who would in fact gain victory despite rejection among men, if Jesus is the one who inspired Isaiah to write about a suffering servant of Jehovah, if Jesus did all those things, it's not at all incredible that his death should have the momentous and the saving significance that Christian theology invests in it. If Jesus was the one who gave life to all creation, if he's the one who worked miracles through Moses and through the prophets, who was truly, as he said, the very resurrection and life, then it's not incongruous that the God-man should rise from the dead once crucified. Indeed, if he was the Son of God, indeed, if he was God the Son, it would not be startling that he would do these things. It would be startling if he did not. It would be startling if he did not rise from the dead. You see, then, once you grant the Christmas story, once you get past that one point, once you affirm from the heart that he was God in human flesh, it now becomes unreasonable to find fault with the rest of Christian theology. And so you see then that the incarnation is the central piece to the Bible's message. If God had not come to live with us and to be part of us, if God had not come and made himself a man, 
All the rest of the biblical account may be up for grabs, but it can't be once you Christmas, once you accept the incarnation. For the glory of the Christmas story is at the heart of Christian theology. The glory of the Christian story is contained in that name that was given to the Messiah by Isaiah the prophet, in which Matthew, in recounting the birth of our Lord, was eager to repeat. He tells us that as Isaiah said, he will be called Immanuel. It's beautiful. Once you start learning Hebrew, you know, that's one of the first things you can pick up on because you, you see the Im with us, Manu with us, El, Elohim. It's God with us. That's what he'll be called. How could you call any mere man that? How would you like it if someone gave you a name like that in English? Well, here comes God among men, right here. How did he get away with that name? Well, he got away with it because it was true. The mystery of the Incarnation is well expressed in the words of the Athanasian Creed. Our Lord Jesus Christ is God and man. Perfect God and perfect man, who although he be God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. One, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of the manhood into God. One of a beautiful declaration of the truth of Christian theology. Listen to this end, the, the end of that uh, quotation. One, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh. Jesus, you have to understand, was not, as it were, for all eternity God, and then converted that Godhood into something less than God, becoming flesh. That is what, when I teach theology, I call incarnation by subtraction. He was always God, then you subtract the Godhood, and then you start again with a man. And that's what we call Jesus the God-man. Makes no sense. He's no longer the God-man, he's just a man. Not by the Godhead into flesh, but rather the taking, as the creed says here, but the taking of the manhood into God. Incarnation by addition. Jesus always was God the Son. Ever will be God the Son. But God the Son added to his nature a human nature. What he was for all eternity, he added something that began in time, and that is the body that God gave him that was born of the Virgin Mary. And he will always have that body. He will always be the God-man. It's another thing I find so often Christians have kind of a funny idea about this. That he was God for a while, then he became man, and then after the resurrection he became God again. He never gave up his Godhood. And he will now never give up his humanity. A wonder of it. Not only... God didn't simply rent a body for a short period of time to do the dirty work of salvation and then give it up to being God and, and you know, kind of wash his hands of this filthy world. He joined himself to our nature forever. We might easily be tempted to seek in this truth the wonder of the incarnation. We might be tempted to seek in that truth what is really the glorious depth of the Christian and Christmas message. We would be tempted to find in this the miracle of Christmas, the really wonderful thing about Christmas, that the infinite creator became, by adding to himself, a finite 
human nature. We could be tempted to search for the wonder of Christmas in the virgin conception of Jesus. Our thoughts could easily be distracted into contemplating the philosophical wonder of the incarnation or physiological wonder of it or the psychological wonder of it that comprehensible the glorious thing that took place is that God enfleshed himself among men but that isn't what I came to preach this morning I just, this, all of this has just been introduction really to what I want to tell you all of that's just setting up for what I really want you to go home remembering and that's that the wondrous and the marvelous truth of the Christmas story is not found in the miraculous dimension as important as it is in fact it opens up the rest of Christian theology that's missing the true glory in the glory of the Christmas story I'm not denying for a minute it's glorious I've told you for you know a number of minutes here it's incomprehensibly good and outstanding and it, it's just the key to everything but it's not the glory of Christmas Packer in his book Knowing God I think um, is most discerning when he writes about the biblical message of the incarnation I want to quote him again he says the taking of manhood by the Son is set before us in a way which shows us how we should set it before ourselves and ever view it not simply as a marvel of nature but rather as a wonder of grace boy what a sentence it's not just the marvel of nature that somehow how could you comprehend this metaphysically how could you comprehend this philosophically or or physiologically that God somehow became man but Packer says it's not just the marvel of nature that we look at it's the wonder of grace let me put it another way the glory of the Christmas story is not so much its reflection upon the power of the Creator it's not just that the Creator displays his control over all the natural laws and all the created properties of things it's not just the miraculous fact that God somehow entered into this world and became man it's rather the revelation of the faithful love of God the Redeemer that makes Christmas so wonderful that God with all his omnipotence could be able to have a virgin woman conceive a son of course he could do that because he's all-powerful he's the creator that the all-powerful creator could manage to unite human nature to divine well once you think about what omnipotence means that's not all that surprising but being the omnipotent creator does not automatically make it the case that he would care for sinful creatures like us what cannot be taken for granted is that God would use his almighty power in this fashion for our salvation that he might do it to display his power his glory his position his rights of course but that he should do it to display the tenderness of his love you can't take that for granted the incarnation is more than a marvel of nature it is a wonder of God's grace and that's why in our scripture reading this morning in Luke 2 you notice that an angel appears to the shepherds what a magical night that was forgive me for that word magic I know it has many pagan connotations but there's the opposite problem we as Christians have often and that's that we forget you know that this world is not the mundane, mundane humdrum 
uh, garden variety kind of thing that we see in our day-to-day -day experience. God does enter into this world and do surprising, wondrous, marvelous things. And the closest thing we have in our culture is to call that magic. And there was something magic about that night. Here are shepherds out in the fields. They're watching their flocks, and an angel appears to them. The Bible says they were, as the King James puts it, sore afraid. It's too bad that we have that come down to us as the way it's put. I mean, they were out of their minds, scared, what they were. They were really trembling. And why not? To the degree that they understood Jewish theology, what would it mean that the heavens would open and they see an angel? Have you ever thought about that? They must have thought it was the day of judgment. They must have thought, now God is going to catch up with all that we've done wrong. And the angel says, Teddy, I'm bringing you good news. And it's interesting. The good news is not God's going to do a miracle that's going to blow your minds. The good news is God has come in the person of a Savior, the Anointed One. Look at the account in your Bibles again. I think this is something we have to take account of. The angel declares good news and the focus of the angel's message is on the identity of this baby born at Bethlehem. Now they'll find the baby wrapped in um, newborn cloth, swaddling clothes. And they'll find the baby not where you'd expect the baby, in a nice warm place, but rather lying in a feed trough for animals in a, in a manger. So all of that is interesting and it's part of the wonder of the Christmas story. That's how they refine this special baby. But who is this baby? Verse 10, the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy which shall be to all the people. For there is born to you this day in the city a Savior who is Messiah, the Lord. The Greek term, of course, is Christos, which you have to remember, because of our associations uh, with the word Christos, we think of that as part of the name of Jesus Christ, first name, last name. Now, I realize if you were asked, you would probably know better than to say that, but most Christians think that way. That's his name, Jesus Christ. He is Jesus the Christ. He is Jesus Messiah. And the angel says, the reason I'm here is to give you good news. The Savior's been born. The Messiah. And look who Messiah is. The Lord. I'm bringing you really good news that God has come not just with the wonder of this miraculous incarnation, but more to save you. You're afraid this is the day of judgment. We bring you good news of salvation. One has been born who will now take away sin. And so then the multitude of heavenly hosts sing glory to God in the highest. And you notice they do not focus on the miracle, great as it is, true as it is. When they sing glory to God in the highest, the hymn of praise, the thing that overwhelms them and brings the song of adoration, the thing that makes them say, in the highest may glory be given to God, is that on earth there is peace to men on whom his favor rests. It's an awkward Greek expression often mistranslated as peace among men. But it means that there is peace for those on whom the favor of God rests, with those whom he is well pleased is another way of translating it. That's the amazing thing that makes the angel sing. And why shouldn't the angel sing? Do you know your theology? 
When angels fell from their original purity, did God offer them a promise of salvation? No. The Bible says they were immediately committed to chains, metaphorically speaking. They were committed to the day of judgment from that point on. No hope of salvation for angels. He does not save the angelic host. And those who are unfallen angels must find it therefore remarkable that God would save puny mankind in its rebellion and sin and impurity. Glory to God in the highest for peace now will come to those on whom the favor of God rests. There's peace where alienation was once entrenched. There is now an overcoming of the barrier where once there was nothing but opposition. And that peace is now present on earth, the angels say. That peace is now part of human experience because that peace has been embodied in this human Jesus of Nazareth. This present experience of saving peace is for men on whom God's favor rests. It's for those who know the grace of God, who know his favor, who know that the real glory of Christmas is not the miracle of the Incarnation, as important as that is to Christian theology. I've already told you that. The real glory of the Christian story. God so loved the world. You know, I'm afraid that those who have Arminian theology miss the point of John 3.16. Such a glorious verse. They usually look at it this way. God so loved the world, the world being understood, how broad the world is. He loved so many men. He loved the world. That's not the New Testament view of the world. Not often, anyway. The Rand McNally view of the world. You know, kind of like the map. God so loved the world. John tells us, in the world is nothing but, you know, the pride of life. In the world is nothing but rebellion. The world is the realm of Satan and hostility to God. And that's the wonder, that's the so in John 3.16. God so loved the world, you want to know how magnificent his love is? He so loved the world. What he gave. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's really the glory of Christmas. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you with hearts that are full of joy this morning, not simply because you are all-powerful, omnipotent, as you have done in history, the grandest of miracles, though we do praise you for it, and we do stand before you and believe the truth of these things, but our hearts are full of joy and rejoicing this morning that you exercised that almighty power to save us when we didn't deserve that. To save us when we were your enemies. To come and to present not the day of judgment with your manifestation. To show your wrath and curse. But to bring a day of salvation. To show your tenderness and your grace. And so it's little wonder that you should come into this world and be born in such humble circumstances because truly you were humiliating and humbling yourself. You had every right to display your glory and to judge us in our sin. But instead you put those things aside and were willing to be born not simply as a man but as a man poverty struck and a man born among animals. 
You have given up so much for us. And that is the true wonder of Christmas, that you have given and given and given. We pray that you would change our hearts, that we might see your love, that we'd be overpowered not simply by the miracle and miracles that you can do, but that we would see the grandest of all wonders, that you should love us. We thank you for the Christmas story. We confess it and acknowledge it to be but the first step toward Calvary, where your love was finally displayed in the midst of darkness. We pray that you would take away our sin, that you would take away our guilt, that you would take away our love of sinning, that you would take away the power of sin in our lives, that we might experience the true wonder and good news of Christmas, that your peace rests upon those whom you've given favor. Do favor us this day in Jesus' name. Amen.